Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand what your company is worth and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business, build a valuable company to be proud of, and exit on your terms. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 162. Today, we're going to revisit ESOPs. And from our loyal fans out there, you've heard me talk a lot about ESOPs. I've had various entrepreneurs that have sold to their employees via an ESOP. And over the years, I've had multiple ESOP specialists on. But because of how much I've learned over the years about the benefits of an ESOP and selling to your employees and working with our clients and these advisors, I thought it was definitely time to revisit, especially with this guest that's going to be on the show, of how well he breaks it all down and the sequential order that we go through because I want you to really understand this because it's something that you need to consider if you're a viable candidate because of all the pros that come with selling to your employees. So today's guest name is Dave Deal. He is the CEO of Prairie Capital Advisors that is out of Chicago. They have eight locations across the U.S. They do three 300 valuations every single year. They've done 500 plus transactions and they are a unique breed because they will help an owner exit to an ESOP, but then also they have an investment banking arm that will help them sell to a third party strategic or a private equity firm. So they really have the best interest of the client in mind because it doesn't really matter which route you want to go. And the reason that I wanted to have Dave on the show is because we've been integrating Dave and his team into our practice because they're the ones that actually do the transaction. So when you actually want to do the ESOP or when you want to do the third party sale after you've gone through our process or through the boot camp, then they're the ones that'll come in and actually do the actual work. Doesn't mean you have to go with them when you work with us, but they have proven themselves to be some of the most genuine, caring, and sophisticated people that have been an absolute blast to work with. So what Dave and I cover on the show today is the entire process of an ESOP from how it gets valued, what your roles and responsibilities are like working with the trustee, and then also post-closing, how you get your money, what percentage comes up front versus what percentage comes over time, all the different tax benefits that come with not paying any tax once you do the ESOP, 
how it impacts your culture, your employees' wealth, the pros and cons and the myths. It's just a complete deep dive in something that is not overly technical. So don't worry if you're skimming the surface or if you've been doing research on this, this is going to benefit you and you're going to take a gold nugget out of it because take it from my word that I've been doing this for years now and I still learn something every single time. And that's the benefit of having specialists like Dave and his team that are out there educating the marketplace because it's something that I truly believe can change businesses preserve legacies, create wealth, and something that all owners should look at. If you're interested in this topic, understanding ESOPs versus private equity firms versus valuations, please check out our boot camp. It's on October 8th, 9th, and 10th in Minneapolis. It's two and a half days. That is all about the growth and exit five principles. It's a crash course. So you, the entrepreneur, the owner, can take control over the entire process figuring out what the target is, the clarity on your vision, and then you can go get it so that way you can be rewarded financially and emotionally just like you deserve from starting and growing a company. So with that being said, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Dave Deal. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Three days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Three days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of the journey. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ryan. How about yourself? Doing good. I am really excited for this because, uh, I mean, the the small world that has continuously gotten smaller over the last six months as we got to know each other through my partner, Pat Hobby, and some of the things that you've done together. And then uh, I had interviewed Jack Stack on the show about a month ago, and I saw that you guys are sponsoring his new conference or his conferences here. So, uh, and then some of my college buddies that work at Belay here have worked with you. So, here we are. <laughs> so for the listeners, because we, you know, Dave, I've talked about ESOPs quite a few times, had people with stories on them, and then we've done a couple little, some deep, you know, some surface dives in them. But then you guys have a very unique setup at Prairie. But before we kind of go into the, some of the meat of this, maybe just give us a little bit of a background of like, how the heck did you get to where you are today and what you're doing? Sure. No, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, our business was started 23 years ago by two of my partners, Ken Serwinski and Bob Gross. Uh, they headed up the middle market merger and acquisition and ESOP practice uh, within Merrill Lynch. Uh, Merrill decided to actually, wanted they wanted to move upstream with some of the size companies they were working with. And Ken and Bob really liked working within the middle market. So uh, they split off and started Prairie Capital and really doing the same thing that they were doing there, which is really focusing on ownership transition, uh, helping you know, individual and privately held business owners, you know, make decisions on on how to exit their business, and then even more importantly, how to go about executing that. And really, that's where our business is today. So our process really is about educating the sellers and, and helping them to understand all of their exit alternatives to vet, you know, what the best alternative is. Because while most business owners are fantastic at running their companies, um, you know, they make a great widget or or they provide a great service. You know, when it comes down to exiting their business, they probably only do this once. I mean, certainly there's some serial entrepreneurs out there you know, who have multiple exits, but most, most of the entrepreneurial business owners that we know are going through this one time. And so you know, they have a limited knowledge of, of what the whole process is about and what alternatives they have. And, and to some degree, what it means to them both from a tax standpoint, a financial standpoint, and also an emotional standpoint. You know, our goal is to help them to, to navigate those waters 
and to put themselves in a position where there's, you know, they have, at the end of the day, when they end up selling their business, they have put themselves in a position where there's no remorse, you know, where they have full confidence in, in what they're doing and how they proceed. So what we do is really vet, you know, all those alternatives. And there's not a whole lot of companies that really practice the way that we do, but you know, we have traditional investment banking practices where we, you know, merger and acquisition advisory, where we're selling companies uh, to third parties, whether that be strategic or financial buyers. Uh, we also will help with management buyouts and, and structuring, effectuating management buyouts or recapitalizations, uh, family transfers. But you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is also we we have an expertise in in uh, the ESOP arena, uh, which is a a, a little different. Uh, avenue that not a whole lot of people, a lot of people have heard about, but not a whole lot of people have a deep understanding of uh, as, as an exit alternative. And that's really a, you know, it's a government-sponsored retirement plan, you know, that allows for exit from privately held business. So we'll, we'll probably get into that in a little bit here. But so in, before we do, what is, what led you to this? Like, what were you doing before Prairie? I mean, have you always been in finance or did, what was your business background? How did, what, what, cause you got a lot of passion behind this. And I think it, and that that's one of the things that is necessary to fuel people in our space. <laughs> no, absolutely. So, so I, I worked for a bank, uh, actually in the, in the wealth management group. So I was working with uh, families that had a hundred million or more in liquid net worth, uh, helping to advise them and, and administer uh, their, you know, their, their assets. Um, you know, while I was there, the the one thing that you know most of these people were obviously entrepreneurs to build that sort of wealth. They you know, they'd been very successful. You know, they were still hiring good people. But you know, what I saw there, and 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 what I realized that I needed when I was going to grad school at the same time. So while I was going through that process, I realized that I really wanted to work in a in a transaction environment, and I wanted to you know advise people um, when it was in this case, you know, like true advice. I mean. There's a lot of times when someone knows a, a good amount about a product or a process, and you're there to be able to facilitate the sale of a, mm-hmm. you know, of a product or or service offering that is that is well known. But you're just you're one of many that provides that service. Yeah, you know, I really wanted to get into a consultative uh, scenario where I was able to, you know, to provide advice to people who really had need and, and were, were were you know needing expertise and needing people that they could trust to to effectuate the transaction. So, um, you know, the transaction side really attracted me. And there was nothing like that actually at the bank that I was at. But I did interview up and down Wall Street coming out of grad school. And, you know, that seemed a little bit more, I mean, it was all public company work and whatnot. It, while it's obviously very important and good intellectual work, it, it was lacking some of the, you know, the educational component and the, and the emotional component that I, I really was striving for. I thought, I want to want to try and make a difference. And, and I met Ken and Bob and you know, they're out here advising these privately held business owners who really need help and they need someone that they can trust. And I just I thought they, they seemed like a couple of good fellows and I, I joined them and, and uh, it proved to be a, an, an excellent decision because I've really enjoyed our path and the growth of Prairie Capital, which uh, when I joined, I was employee number seven. And now we've got eight offices across the country and uh, we're about 53 people right now. So. It's super cool. And, and and as you know, for the for the listeners here, I mean, what as we've started kind of doing some work together and collaborating on clients, I mean, there's not a whole lot of, you know, a lot of there's sometimes you find an investment banker where they only get paid to sell your company, right? So they're not going to sit down and actually help you, you know, tear through the different options, right? I mean, so that's why I think that the what you guys are doing and how kind of your sweet sweet spectrum of services is important for as we're bringing you involved. It's like, hey, we actually can put some meat on this as far as the different out in the, as far as the different options. Cause you kind of don't care, right? You're just trying to get them to the, the, the right 
equation that makes sense for them. And it just, it, it doesn't happen too often as was that complicated at the beginning as you were guys were trying to figure out how to pay the bills? I mean, like how did, did you guys start doing all the services right off the bat or was it, you know, you, you slowly started adding them and like, how did, how did the whole thing evolve? Well, so, you know, it, well, obviously it started pretty small, um, but because of uh, our ESAP expertise, you know, on top of the, the pure investment banking, what that did is that provided some annuitized revenue. So, you know, we, we actually had done some work in the ESOP space, and, and there's a requirement to have valuations done annually uh, within that environment. So, while the, the M&A space is very, it's it's all you know transaction-related fees, where you either sell the company or you don't, and you either get you know paid or you don't. Um, that's a very volatile structure. <laughs> yeah. Our our structure really gave us a lot of balance because you know we ended up building a nice recurring revenue base that that provided us with the protection we needed to keep the lights on and and made the rest of it um, you know purely additive so as we've continued to grow you know we've never had to lay anyone off uh, since since I've been at Prairie Capital and we continue to, to add on additional work and services and and part of what's allowed us to do that is this structure because you know we can be extremely patient with sellers you know if this isn't something where we need to get a deal closed in any given year mm-hmm. we want to do right by the clients and you know, being 55 people who cover the country uh, with these services, we need to have, you know, happy clients that, that are out, you know, speaking about our services and the job that we did to their other entrepreneurial friends and, and helping us to expand the message, you know, not only them, but also the the other professionals that are in on the deal. Um, oh, yeah. So, so by being patient, we also are not, you know, we're not pushy in, in, in scenarios and, and certainly, you know, bankers, lawyers, accountants, wealth managers, you know, are excited to bring us in to meet their clients because again we can do some education without them having to feel that someone's going to be sold you know hard on on, on you know you on, on signing up for services or or whatnot no I, mean, I think that's super important because i mean like i was just talking uh last week to uh an attorney where like i mean it you know sometimes you just like the professionals just have to get the deal done, but it might not be the right situation. Right. I mean, just based on the kind of the, the infrastructure that each, you know, advisor brings to the table. So I think it's, it's important. And, and I know we're going to, so the kind of for the, for the next uh, 45 minutes, I want to kind of maybe take this in chunks because you guys are one of the leading ESOP specialists in the country. And then, so I, you know, like I said, I've done some, you know, various episodes about this, but I think you guys have, again, I want to kind of dive into that, but then also kind of comparing the ESOP structure than to, to financial buyers and private equity and kind of kind of the state of the market. But, you know, Dave, let's just kind of start with the ESOPs and just maybe in your your general layman's terms, like what are they and then how long has it been around and kind of just give us the, the kind of the crash overview of it. Sure. Um, no, so the, you know, ESOPs have been around, whether they're technically ESOPs or not, you know, for quite some time, but really in the 70s was the first creation of the ESOP. What an ESOP is, it's an employee stock ownership plan. This is a ERISA-sponsored retirement plan uh, that the government has put in place that helps to, you know, to, for, for an owner to sell their stock to their employees in a tax-advantaged manner. So, you know, the really, you know, relative to a management buyout, it's not dissimilar. But the main difference is, is that it's a tax-advantaged management buyout with the primary difference being the tax advantages, but also the fact that there is, you know, in a lot of management buyouts, it may be two or three managers who are buying the whole company. With an ESOP, anyone who's a full-time employee uh, will participate within the plan. So, you know, it's non-discriminating, you know, broad-based dissemination of wealth within the company. 
So, you know, from, from that standpoint, it's, you know, it, it's a great tool, you know, to help to provide additional compensation, you know, to all employees and ideally to tie their performance to some of their compensation, because if obviously they collectively perform well, share price goes up and they all uh, increase their wealth. Which um, I want to kind of maybe get, we can kind of take these in chunks too, because like understanding how that actually buyout happens, because you, you'll you'll maybe get a kick out of this. I was doing a, a presentation to a bunch of owners and we were talking about the various exit options and they said, well, I didn't know an ESOP was an exit option. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like they, they thought they were just going to give their company to their employees. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think there's just, and that's kind of the whole point of us doing this stuff together, right? Is like, continuously you know, educate people on that. So maybe just kind of walk through the whole process of how an ESOP, I mean, you, you, you do these all the time. So whatever way you think that the listeners will be able to digest this in a meaningful way, how does that whole, how does the whole process work and how does that actually, how does the seller walk away and what's the kind of the, the situation after that, after the fact? Sure. So, you know, within an ESOP, you know, just from a pure technical standpoint, you know, an ESOP, it needs to be formed, which is basically a, a, a trust that will end up being the purchaser uh, of, of stock. And again, it's an ERISA-protected uh, retirement plan uh, that's established within that trust. In this case, you know, a seller would look at, at you know, facilitating something like this. How the seller would get paid is that the company you know, would go and borrow money from the bank. Uh, so you're using the, the balance sheet of the company to go and borrow funds. The company then lends these funds to the ESOP. And the ESOP uses those funds to buy stock. So, you know, as far as the flow of money is concerned in, in this regard, that's how the flow of money goes. And in, in fact, the, the seller may, in fact, uh, provide some seller financing to the company to help to facilitate some of that buyout as well. Uh, but, you know, the, the money travels from the bank through the company, is loaned to the trust, and then goes to the sellers. Now, what this does is basically it, it allows for you know, for this tax savings that we were talking about. So in a normal management buyout, you're looking at a, a company that goes and borrows money in a similar fashion. You're, you're borrowing off the company's own balance sheet. And, uh, you know, the company needs to pay back that debt. Well, after you pay taxes on profits, you have free cash flow that you have the ability to pay debt on. Obviously, the interest you can pay on a pre-tax basis, but the principal, you cannot. With an ESOP, Effectively, if you do a $10 million transaction, you're going to have $10 million worth of tax deductions uh, that you're going to be able to take you know, on, the, on that purchase, which is going to basically make the repayment to the bank pre-tax in nature. Mm-hmm. So there's a real cash flow advantage to using an ESOP. Now, that works whether you sell you know, 10% you know, of, the, of, the, of the company to the ESOP or you sell hundred percent of the company to an ESOP, that deduction is available. The holy grail on that front, though, is is when a company is a hundred percent ESOP owned S corporation. You know, an S corporation is a conduit tax entity. So, for those that own S corporations, you know that every year the company makes profit. You know, you receive. You know, the allocation of of the the profit is actually uh, distributed and recognized at the individual shareholder level. And the shareholder is has the requirement to pay tax on the income that they've received through that pass-through entity. Well, an ESOP is a tax-exempt entity. So in this case, an ESOP is passing. A company that's 100% ESOP owned is making that profit at the corporate level, but there is no tax obligation to its shareholder because its shareholder is actually a tax-exempt entity. So the company is able to vehicle, right? 
Yeah, so the company is able to retain all that cash flow to greatly accelerate its its, its uh, pay down of, of the debt associated with the transaction. So really powerful tool in, in that regard. Well, can we, and let's, cause before, cause I want to, I know we want to keep going to it, but like just to kind of maybe reiterate and clarify some stuff for the listeners. Cause so let's say maybe we take a couple examples of numbers, Dave, where like, let's say we've got a million dollars and maybe before we do this, what is the the general qualifications of an ESOP of, as far as like the minimum firm employees and cash flow, And then we can kind of put an example on it. Yeah. I mean, I would say in general, companies need to have about, you know, 20 or more employees, probably 250,000 in EBITDA to do an ESOP. Now you can do an ESOP with a company that's smaller than that, but you know, there are some expenses from administration standpoint and you need to have from the personnel standpoint, you need to have a, you know, usually at least 20 people, but from a profitability standpoint, you know, in order to offset some of the the cost of just administering the plan that really isn't, uh, you know, affected by how big the company is, mm-hmm. um, you need to have about $250,000. I've always heard a million bucks for some reason. Well, I mean, a million is helpful, certainly, but there we we found <laughs> I mean, yeah, bigger, more money the better, right? Yeah, the, the bigger the bigger the deal, the, you know, the more easily you're able to offset the cost. But we've seen a number of players do it, and we've we've done deals pretty efficiently, uh, you know, to allow that to to work in a deal that's even a million, a million and a half in size for the whole company. The the, the business is worth a million, million and a half. So, so let's take a million dollar EBITDA example. So, you know, how how does the valuation work? Because I think. You know, as we, you know, kind of put a the bookend at the end of the episode, but like the the valuation is a strategic, I'm sorry, is a financial buyer, right? Because you're talking about on the cash flow. So how does that work, you know, versus like the sale that we did, we you know we sold and there's strategic overlaps. And so you, you've got a lot of cost cutting that you can do. So maybe just kind of talk through the valuation process and then we can kind of just take this in chunks. No, absolutely. Yeah. So you know, when you do a tr- an ESOP transaction, there really are two very, very similar to a uh, sale to a third party. There's a negotiation. You know, so you have the seller, and the seller is representing themselves, uh, or they're having dev professionals represent them, but they're they're basically looking out for their own interest. And there is a trustee who oversees the ESOP that is looking out for its interest. And under ERISA, you know, the the, the trustee cannot pay more than fair market value. You know, fair market value you know, being defined as a willing buyer, willing seller, neither under compulsion to act in that case, which really is a financial buyer because what they're buying is, it it was very similar to a private equity firm that doesn't have a strategic um, aspect that it's able to bring to the table. So Mm -hmm. you're really looking at the company's borrowing capability and the company's cash flows in order to see if they can, you know, pay off uh, the buyout over time. That's very similar, again, to what an ESOP is looking at when it's valued. So it's not, you know, when we're talking fair market value, we're looking at a price that probably is rather competitive uh, in the market. But if you did a, if you shopped a company in an M&A process, you know, the, the ESOP isn't going to be the, you know, the high bidder. It's probably going to be right in the middle of the mix of, of, of any of the financial buyers that are out there. So that really defines the pricing limitations uh, of an ESOP and the, and the trustee is going to oversee that process. Well, and then that's where the, well, we'll get into the, the tax savings because the net proceeds, the net proceeds might be more with the ESOP, even though the price might be more with the strategic, but you know, then, okay. So we got the valuation and then the trustee, I mean, like, I think people get a lot of free, get really freaked out of this David. It's like, well, there's someone else who's going to, I no longer own my company. Right. So how do like this trustee, who is it? Where do they come from? You know, like you probably get that feedback a lot. So, I don't know if you want to shed some light on that. 
Sure. No, I mean, trustees, you know, they can be, quite honestly, anyone. Um, it's certainly not advisable that they be the seller uh, because, you know, again, there's fiduciary responsibilities to being a trustee and you don't want a conflict of interest. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, companies will have um, some of their employees be trustees, but that's really, you know, there's, again, there's a bit of a conflict uh, in, in that yeah. situation. And so what's best and what we recommend and, and really require for all uh, of the parties that, that we represent is that if they're going to do an ESOP transaction, that there be a you know third party qualified trustee uh, that acts in that capacity. And these are institutional parties. You know, it may be you know a, a small firm that happens to have an expertise in this, or it may be a large trust company. Uh, but we want to have people with actual expertise in over, overseeing the transaction. Once the transaction occurs, you will see some people. You know, they will use the, the, the institutional trustee for the transaction. They'll, they'll put in someone, you know, whether it be a, an independent party or someone working at the company that's independent uh, in that capacity just for administrative purposes. But most companies will continue on with uh, their institutional trustee relationship. And, and really, that relationship is, is very passive. Right. So as, as you mentioned, there's, if there's one thing that really spooks people uh, when they sell to an ESOP, is that they, they're giving up control. And so technically, if an ESOP buys 100% or more than 50% of the company, you know, they're gonna wanna have you know, control of, of the company in fact. So you know, they're gonna wanna make sure that you know, they have the potential to legally do all that they need to do to protect their economic interest. Yep. Now, you know, that, so that, that spooks people and they have the ability to, uh, to basically place the board and, and elect the board members for the company, uh, you know, which, you know, should, should raise some concern to people from a conceptual standpoint, from a practical standpoint, though, you know, the trustee is just bought into the company. It's bought into the management team of the company to its leadership. And, you know, it wants to keep in place people that really have a sound understanding of the business. So, you know, it would be, you know, beyond rare to see someone, you know, who's a, who's a prior owner that, that's desiring to be on the board or, to have anyone at the, at the company level that was that was associated with the board or leadership to ever really feel any pressure from the trustee to act un- unless there's some severe problems. So the trustee has a lot more risk in trying to dictate how the business is run than in going through procedurally and making sure that they have good people in place, that they understand the decision-making process and that the decision-making process is sound. Right. And, like, so, and, at, and then at the end of the day, it's not going to be some random stranger. I mean, you're going to be able to sit down and say, okay, like it might be me my on the board, right? It might be me, my CFO and a trustee, right? <laughs> and, well, yeah, and the trustee will never sit on the board, but the trustee will, will likely want some independent party to sit on the board. Got it, so, got it, got it. Okay. So, so they're, so they're, you know, what they want to do, like we're, we just closed a deal about 20 minutes ago. Part of the terms of the transaction were that the company who has a five person board was going to add two independent parties to that, to that board. So, yeah, you know, the trustee won't even, you know, they won't you know, make a determination of who those parties should be. I mean, they'll want to review that and make sure that they're qualified. But basically, the slate of potential board members is going to be proposed to them by the existing board members, and then they will approve. So, yeah, you're right. No one's no one's going to have someone shoved on their board that's going to become disruptive and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, they really want the, the the status quo to to continue and to make sure that the company's you know making good decisions and is proceeding along the path. Uh, that was intended. So again, while giving up control is is kind of real from a practical standpoint, 
if the company's operating well and if people are making good strategic decisions, nothing's going to change. Right. I mean, yeah. If you're running a sound company, you're being prudent already. Then it's literally just going to be it's going to be just the same. <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, out of the 400 deals that, that we've done since I've been here, I think we've had two board members displaced. One who was disruptive and one who committed fraud. So <laughs> there you, you know, go. Those are, those are scenarios that are pretty extreme, and the disruption was was pretty extreme too. So, um, you know, those are those are cases <laughs> where anyone would make the decision, but it, it kind of needs to get to that level for yeah. for action to take place usually. So then, let's say in that, let's let's even um, continue down that the, the kind of the the path because I think for the, the listeners that are contemplating this stuff, it's like okay, well you have your money too. So it's not like you just did this without getting any money or any terms, right? So let's say we're going back to the million dollars in EBITDA and there's probably a range based on the financial buyer. And I think very specific, um, the biggest variable would that be, it would be company specific risk and how well it's run, right? And making sure you can figure out how, what the valuation is. So, and then explain, you know, when you said that you could either go get money from the bank or there could be seller financing, you know, what does the kind of the fun flow look like for the seller? You know, what are the different options and how does that work? Because, you know, you're not going to go through the whole situation that you just described unless you got paid out, right? You're not just doing this for the heck of it. So like maybe kind of explain how that works. Sure. No. So, you know, in this path, let's, let's use the million dollar example and say that it's a, a $5 million valuation. So five times EBITDA uh, company in this case, you know, probably the most common structure that you'll see is that a company like that will be able to go and borrow about 50% of their capital structure. So they'll be able to borrow $2.5 million of cash from the bank. And then they'll lend in themselves as from a seller financing standpoint, the other $2.5 million into the transaction. So, you know, they get liquidity immediately and then they've got a note uh, that's owed to them by the company that, that is subordinate to the bank, but is also receiving subordinated uh, type returns uh, that they'll end up carrying uh, for a period of time. And, and so, you know, for a lot of people, particularly after they sell a business, you know, a lot, of, a lot continue to stay on. So a lot of people that we talk to about ESOPs, you know, they're five or six years away from departing the company anyway. So they think, Hey, I'll sell my stock. I'll stick it. I'll stick with the company through, you know, the end payment of my note, which I would say on, on average, most hundred percent ESOPs will pay out within about five years. Uh, they'll get the, the internal or the, the, the seller notes paid so off. So it'll be done in five years, usually after. So the bank, and the, just kind of make sure that I want to reiterate for the listeners. So out of $5 million, some, you know, half bank, half seller's notes, all of that's paid down in five years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on a, on a, and again, I'm thinking about a five times EBITDA deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so the bank, the, the bank is basically paid off within five years, which means that you have availability of, of, of $2.5 million again to refinance out the seller. I, I will say that, you know, one, one, uh, one item that comes up often with people is they're like, well, you know, it'd be great to, to sell my business to an ESOP, but again, I can get strategic value and I'm going to get more money there and whatnot. That can be the case. I mean, there certainly are, are scenarios where strategics can pay a lot more and will pay a lot more. But from a, an ESOP perspective, the interesting part is, is kind of twofold. One, an ESOP buys stock rather than assets. So there is some tax advantage uh, to the seller at the time of the deal. And in fact, with, with an ESOP, and I won't go into the specific characteristics, but there is something called a 1042 account, which means that you actually have the ability to defer capital gains in what's very similar to a like-kind real estate exchange. So you're able to move your proceeds into a basket of qualified U.S. Uh, stocks and bonds and move your basis over. So that's you're able to defer capital gains. And, and for those who are 
uh, advanced in age and maybe looking at estate planning and whatnot, if you hold that in your estate until death, then there's a forgiveness of capital gains. So there's a clear planning and tax advantage in that scenario that you know, that, that plays out. Can I put some color on that? And then I want you to continue, but like, cause I was in my last episode, I was talking to an MA attorney and we were talking about the asset versus stock. And so, I mean, like literally the difference between ordinary income and then capital gains. Right. And then, so on that two, like, let's say it was my company and I got 2.5 in cash. Right. Or like that, like you just described, I can move that over. Right. So just maybe versus if I sold to a third party and that was an asset sale, I mean, you're talking big numbers over the course of the entire. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it's really important to look at the tax ramifications because a lot of people look at the headline number, right? They want to go to the country club, pound their chest and say, <laughs> Hey, I just got, I got 7 million for my company rather than five. And it, while it feels good, what goes in the pocket and what goes in the bank account is all that really matters. <laughs> and, and so it's important to, to drill down and to understand uh, the tax ramifications. So this, yeah, this 1042 exchange is pretty unique to ESOPs and is a real advantage. But the interesting thing too is that one of the other real advantages, and, and it particularly right now, is that when we see people that are looking at retiring, or, or maybe they're not retiring, but they're selling their business, you know, they're about to lose, you know, likely if they're, if they're walking away and, and, and they are retiring, they're going to lose their income stream. And yep. so they're looking to replicate some of that. And one of the biggest problems right now is that, you know, CDs and bonds, well, bonds have a whole lot of risk to them and, and have very limited yield and CDs have very limited yield. So it's hard mm-hmm. for people to create some sort of a fixed income portfolio. You know, when people do these deals, like I say, you get, you know, in this case, $2.5 million worth of cash. That's a great thing to invest in equities. If you're going to have a balanced portfolio, you say, well, I'm going to invest half in equities, half in bonds. Well, the, the seller notes that you have within the company really are like a bond, but what they're going to do is, you know, they're going to, you're going to basically have a a much higher interest rate because there's a subordinated interest rate associated with these these notes. And because of installment tax treatment on the notes, you're going to owe tax on the the 2.5 if you take it out and don't do the 1042. The the, the money that you receive, you're going to owe tax on capital gains rates. The other money that hasn't been paid to you yet is is tax deferred. So you're not earning a yield on the post-tax Oh, balance. Yeah. You're earning yeah. it. You're earning the yield on the pre-tax balance, which even enhances that return even more. So, you know, in, in every case, but an ESOP, I would tell you that holding seller financing after a transaction is a massive mistake. In an ESOP structure, I think it's an incredible opportunity, and and we see a whole lot of situations where we're having trouble, you know, getting you know people to to want to get the, their their notes paid off than those who are looking to to get the liquidity, just because there's <laughs> There's no way to replicate it. Yeah, and, yeah. And while people look at that too, and they say, you know, here we have a, a situation where you know we've got um, we've got all of our this, this note. It's it's tied to one company. It's a company that that person knows, and that that it's person has actually gone and, and represented for sale at what it can do. And now that company, particularly if it's a hundred percent S corporation ESOP, that company doesn't pay tax. So. <laughs> The risk return on those notes is phenomenal. In fact, if it wasn't a conflict of interest, I, I'd try and buy into every single deal that we have. <laughs> no kidding, right? Yeah, right. Well, and like, and even to put even more on top of that, because like, I'm just thinking about my example from our sale. Like, incomes, mine and my dad's incomes both go away. We pay astronomical amounts of taxes, and then we have to go find a way to replicate that income. And so, like, let's say I go back to the example. I get 2.5 in cash. I put it over into like kind of exchange. And then we got seller financing that is a yield 
that is on pre-tax, but then also I get to keep my job, right? <laughs> like I also get a, a payroll or I'm on the payroll. Yep. And you get some of that stock back if you're staying with the company and it's, and it's a S corporation ESOP. If you, if you do take the tax deferral and you stay with the company, you can't participate in the ESOP. But if you don't take the tax deferral, the 1042 that I was talking okay. about, you yeah. actually can participate in the ESOP. So you're getting some of that stock back and, and, you know, again, beefing up your retirement plan. So then let's go back to like, okay, how does, how does the actual ESOP distribute uh, the shares? And so what is the average term of the ESOP? And then how do employees get in kind of the whole, you probably know which, which route I'm going with this. You can start however you want. Sure. Yes. We talked about how the seller gets his money. You know, the day after this, this deal is done, so this $5 million deal that we've been talking about right after it's, it's effectuated, you have an ESOP that owns $5 million worth of stock and you have a loan that it has back to the company of $5 million. What happens is, and usually this is set up, the, the term of that internal loan is set up in order to provide uh, a certain level of benefits to employees. So, you know, people, when, when shares are released, individuals within the company will receive stock based on their prorated portion of the W-2. So if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm being paid $100,000 in a company with $10 million of qualified payroll, I'm getting 1% uh, of the allocation. So, you know, what happens here is the company will basically say, okay, well, we're going to, in the case of the 5 million, say it's a 10-year loan. The company would make a $500,000 contribution to the ESOP so that the ESOP can pay off its note. Well, the note is actually owed back to the company. So the, the, the ESOP basically takes that money and sends it right back to the company to repay its note. So it's the the release of, of the of, or the, the pay down of the note is a non-cash event for the company itself. But what that does is now they've paid off one-tenth of the loan. Now one-tenth of the stock that was in that plan is going to be released and allocated to participants based on their W-2 compensation. So then in so like let's take that example and let's so like if I'm the hundred thousand dollars uh salaried employee, I get one percent of the company, I stay with the company for you know, as this hap- you know, sequentially happens over time, I slowly get more and more and kind of explain just, you know, cause in real terms, you know, employees come and go, then you've got key executives. So how does the kind of the whole, you know, ebb and flow and the dynamics of that, of the real world get impacted in that situation? Sure. Well, I mean, the, obviously your, your leaders of your organization are your highest paid. So they're going to portionally get larger because they're W2, they're going to get larger allocations. But let's say that there's that $100,000 person. Yeah, the first year in that $500,000 example of repaying the loan, they're going to receive, you know, $5,000 worth of stock. You know, so that stock's in their account. Now, ideally, that stock is going to increase in value over the course of time. So the next year, maybe that's maybe the company is worth 600,000. So the next year, not only are they getting now $6,000 worth of stock in their account, but their 5,000 that they had before is now worth 6, so now you've got 12. And each year that you know, that releases, you know, most of these programs in order to deal with the turnover issue, you know, they, they actually put in investing uh, requirements. So they want to make sure that this is a, something that benefits people, you know, who, who are providing for the company over the long term. So, you know, for a lot of companies, they'll have, obviously you have normal compensation. A lot of companies will have year end bonuses and year end bonuses are really about the near term mm-hmm. and ESOP, you know, you're not paid out on the ESOP until you leave the company. You either retire or you terminate with the company. And if you're vested when that, that occurs, the company has an obligation to buy back your stock. So if I've been with the company for seven years 
and I'm fully vested and I decide to retire and I've got an $80,000 balance in my ESOP account, uh, the company will uh, redeem my stock for $80,000 and that's how I get my liquidity. Does it have to always be paid? Because I've heard like you can either do like a, like you can pay it out right away or there can be kind of like a ladder depending on different situations is, you know, is that, can you get creative on that? Cause I think one of the biggest things that a lot of people, you know, hear that and they get freaked out because, you know, they probably, depending on everybody's, you know, the, the spectrum of financial maturity of these companies, you know, having all these liabilities on their books probably scares the living crap. Out of them. Sure. <laughs> so like, I don't know. It's a great point. And, and the reality is, is there, because it's an ERISA protected plan, there are very hard lines that cannot be crossed. However, there's a whole lot of, of flexibility within those lines. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of malleability to how you go about structuring this. So you're right. I mean, you can, you can wait five, if someone leaves the company, you can wait five years to buy them out and then buy them out over five years. That's the ultimate limit to, to doing this. So, you know, anything short of that is acceptable. So there is flexibility there. Certainly for a lot of companies, if they're, if they're not done paying for the stock yet, they're not going to make distributions unless it's uh, maybe death, disability, or retirement. They're not going to actually buy people's stock. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know there are a lot of safeguards there. And to your point too about liabilities, people are looking and saying, "Well, that's a big liability." I will tell you that in in most cases, I mean, really for any healthy company, you know, that doesn't have some if it's in software and it has a massive multiple or something, it, it can change things. But for for I would say eighty to ninety percent of the companies. If you are, particularly if you're 100% S corporation ESOP, you've now you're no longer paying tax. So once this debt is paid down, a lot of these companies are building cash rather rapidly because they don't even need to. They don't have enough things to invest in uh, to use all the cash <laughs> they're producing, and there's no one going to call for it. So the the biggest demand for those companies ends up being repurchased obligation. But you know, for most of these companies, if they have a normal seven to eight percent turnover uh, within their their population that's vested, you know, so that's not annual. So you might have a company that has a lot of turnover any given year for the first year employees or whatnot. But for people that stick it through, you know, anything from seven to ten percent is is a pretty normal number. The tax savings alone from the structure helps to finance all of the repurchase obligation, and companies are able to operate, you know, very. Uh, cleanly through that and navigate those waters rather rather clearly without any real issues. Well, and then and yeah, you, you make and because you paid down you know five million dollars in debt. I mean already, so you have cash that's just accumulating. So and I think also just a note is that you have people like you and these other people that are sitting on your side that are helping you with the forecasting and the and the modeling of this stuff, right? So you're not just sitting there blind to just your own devices, right? I mean you have people sit, that are helping you making sure that you can see clearly down the road. You know what I mean? So I'm. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, there's it, it's it's critical, particularly with an ESOP, given how nuanced it is, to have a quality team and professional parties um, helping not only to structure it, but then to, to be a part of the ongoing administration. You know, because well, yeah. at the end of the day, what's what's required? You know, so if I'm a participant, the only thing that's required for me to receive every year uh, is that every year the business has to be valued, um, so that so that you know how much the stock is worth. And you need to know what the allocation is that year. But what, what a participant actually receives is simply a statement that says how many shares they own and what those shares are worth and what and how much they're vested. That's the only information that someone has to be provided. So there's not any real detailed information sharing whatnot. Now, there's a lot of companies, and obviously you were talking, as you mentioned, to Jack Stack. I mean, there's a lot of parties that are ESOP companies that practice open book management. Uh, there's a lot of great game uh, players that, that are out there in the ESOP space. So they, 
they share a lot more information and they use the ESOP alongside you know, some, of, some of Jack's strategies to, to go and engage their employees. But at the end of the day, if, if, if that's not what you want, you have the ability to do that. You also have the ability when structuring this to extend the front end of the loan to kind of allocate the stock over a longer period of time. So it's not unusual for this internal loan to allocate, say, say you do 100% transaction, to allocate the stock over you know, 20 years um, if, you're, if that's hitting your target benefit that you're trying to provide to employees. So you know, that repurchase issue in that case really isn't going to raise its head at the very earliest until you know, 20, 25 years out. And really, if you're, if you're managing the business well, it, it really will never impact you. Well, and you make such a huge point, and I want everybody to, to constantly hear that because you don't all of a sudden have a, a socialist, you know, company where everybody's got to vote and you've got to, you know, go to a, <laughs> go. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Well, I'm going to have to answer to 150 of my employees and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, that's not the case, right? I mean, like you, because, correct me if I'm wrong, but because the ESOP owns it, it's not like you have all these minority shareholders that you have a prudent responsibility to disclose this stuff with, right? Because of how the whole no. structure works. Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, what all you have to disclose to them is exactly what I told you. I mean, that, that's the only information they need from that standpoint. I mean, I own Apple stock and I can't tell Tim Cook what to do. It's, it's no different, right? I mean, yeah. and, 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 and Tim Cook doesn't own Apple. Tim right. Cook's an employee. And that's really what the, it really, an ESOP is extremely similar, similar from a governance standpoint to a publicly traded security because you have a board of directors that oversees management, which oversees rank and file, and they you know, provide their services to a very broad-based ownership group. And ESOP is kind of the same, but it's it's the employees of that given entity. Well, and let's talk about like how the dynamics can change if the things go right as far as like culture. And so, so we talked about this, the tax savings, right? So obviously financially, there's a huge benefit, but let's talk about like what, culturally and legacy. Because I think, you know, Dave, you and I and Jack Stack and like Bo Brilling and all these people that really understand that a lot of these founders they like they want their legacy to carry on and they want their employee like so like explain kind of the the dynamic shift that happens and how that works and and what happens with the culture because and, and to kind of put a bow on that i interviewed do you know daniel goldstein at all from super yes. yes. yeah so i interviewed him on the on the show and the 134 year old company esab and he he said and that's what i titled the podcast using the purest form of capitalism because people invest their labor Right, and then they actually become more wealthy. And Jack said that he's got a guy in the on the shop floor that's making fifteen bucks an hour. That's a millionaire. <laughs> and yeah. so, can you just kind of explain the employee mindset, how that happens, and what happens with the culture and the competitiveness? You know, uh, compared to other people and other companies. Sure. I mean, I think the main thing you know, one is that it's your point, kind of in the, in the front end of that is is what it sometimes means to the seller. I mean, almost every seller, you know. It's very rare to find a seller where dollars are the singular most important thing in, in, in a sale process. They may start the process that way, but it's it's critical to evaluate what's truly important to them in the process. And oftentimes, you know, it, it is it's their employees, it's the legacy of the business, it's the legacy to the community. I mean, for for businesses, we had a business that was in uh, rural Kansas. That I mean, the the company actually employed half of the community. Yeah. And and the company was potentially up for sale. They were trying to decide whether to do an ESOP or to sell it outright. If they were sold outright, the business was going to be uprooted and, and moved to another facility and combined with that and the entire town would have shut down. You know, that's that's not the legacy that that party wanted to leave behind. That's a pretty extreme example, but, but that's something it, that I, sorry, I think that that's something that a lot of people 
you know, kind of deal with and on a much smaller scale, you know, than that. So, you know, for a lot, it's, it, it is an emotional aspect. They're saying, well, I don't want to, I don't want my biggest competitor to buy us and to be running this. I don't want a private equity firm to buy us and to have, you know, these managers who've helped me to grow the business now having to answer to, to someone else and go through that process. You know, they, they let, they like the idea often of, of independence. And with that, you know, you often can drive both operating, you know, improvement and uh, heightened retention through having an ESOP program. So ESOPs work fantastically in service businesses. So, you know, Prairie Capital is actually an ESOP owned company. So our assets walk in and out the door every day. It's all human capital related. We consult, we have a lot of people with a lot of expertise who do a phenomenal job, but we want to help them to have some skin in the game and to, you know, to, to have a, a stake in, in our, in our equity performance on any given year. So, you know, we put in place uh, an ESOP and what that does is it, it really provides a, a benefit that, that not many companies can because oftentimes ESOP owned companies in almost every scenario that we see actually provide benefits at a higher level than others. So there's, there's enhanced retirement benefits yeah, yeah. Uh, at, at most of these companies. And, you know, this is something where, again, they, they can find their, their, you know, tie into the equity of the business which makes for a, a different cultural dynamic. I mean, and, and that, that cultural dynamic doesn't necessarily just happen simply because somebody owns stock, but most ESOP companies really work with their employee base to, to help to build an employee-owned culture, to help people to embrace the fact that, you know, they are planning on remaining independent and uh, that they are getting a piece of the action uh, going forward and, and, you know, what they can do to help to improve that and it helps them to hold one another somewhat accountable. So we see all sorts of companies that do a phenomenal job of, of, of building that culture and, and helping to expand the business, you know, save on from a cost standpoint and really lower, uh, you know, lower the, the turnover that, that may be inherent in their industry. Well, I think it's so interesting, Dave, because I mean, first of all, there's probably got to be an inherent like kind of profile of the sellers like and the cultures that gravitate towards this versus like the dictatorship um, stuff that <laughs> might be, right? Like, ah, yeah. oh, this has been in my personal piggy bank for boats and cars and everybody's just worker bees. But like, so there's probably a, a, a generic or a, a general like difference of those kind of people. But I just think like, if you think about, this is just my own two cents, but like, it's kind of like common sense and human nature. Like we all want, to be like, we all want affirmation. We all want to be a part of something as human beings. And then we all want to be driving towards a goal together. And then like when every, when you wrap together that everybody becomes wealthy doing that, <laughs> like it kind of just naturally makes sense that everybody is going to pick up the phone one more time or like customer service. I just think about like someone that's making $14 an hour who has problems at home, fighting for retirement, doing all this stuff. And then next thing you know, they, they know that they're there's a bigger carrot at the end of that. Like you're going to just be different as a normal person. I don't know. It just makes too much. Absolutely. But, but it, but it does take, I mean, it, it takes some effort and some skill, but if you get a company that's built like that, it is amazing to see, you know, the emotion that pours out of people as it relates to this. I mean, when you, when you have people retiring and, and we've seen plenty of them that, you know, retire, some of them with a seven figure uh, account that, that were, weren't even in jobs that, you know, that were, you know, more than a hundred thousand dollars in pay, it's like they could never do that otherwise. And so there is potential in it, you know, and, and ideally if, if the company's operated well, and again, they have that, that cultural build, then it can happen. I mean, you know, 
even if someone has and received this, you know, a much smaller amount than that, it's still something that's saved for retirement that they, they didn't have to reach into their own pocket to help to do that. Yeah. Or save after tax or something like that. You know, what are the, some of the, you know, cause I know we're getting short here on time. Um, one very specific question, can ESOPs be sold? Uh, they can. And, and in fact, we're selling an ESOP tomorrow. Um, so, uh, the, you know, the, so they, they can be sold and, and we see a few of those sold. So out of the, you know, 300 that we actually have that we work with annually, we usually have about five or six every year that are sold. And for a lot of different reasons, sometimes for strategic reasons, sometimes, you know, technology has moved in a way that that's made them less efficient. Maybe there's consolidation within an industry, you know, the trustee and, and the, and the management team really has a, an obligation to look out for the shareholder. And if, if there's a good time to monetize and that makes sense, then you'll tend to see companies do that. Now, most companies that they want to remain in ESOP are going to find ways to, you know, to build in the succession and to, and to ensure that they're able to stay independent and whatnot, which is great. But if there is a need to sell or in some cases, if there's just simply an opportunity that's, that's too good to pass up financially, you'll see companies do that. So they've, you know, they're, there may be cases where someone comes knocking on the door and absolutely positively strategically needs that party and and you know everyone's net worth will will go up three fourfold and mm-hmm. overnight so mm-hmm. uh, it all depends so you know if if i'm a, a you know an owner and i'm sitting there going okay what's the you know that sounds awesome but then i've also got you know i see it all the time dave or like you know we knew our industry like super well, right? Like there's always this, I think there's this creative gravitation towards owners going, well, if you put this person with that person and that person buys this person, then you can do all this stuff versus like an ESAP, you know, like there's a, there's kind of like a creative, you know, a shiny object to selling to a third party of the people that, you know, you know, what, what would be like the kind of the couple questions that you'd leave people with as they're kind of looking at the different options and how they might impact different things or kind of what I was just uh, describing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's one tool in, in the case. And so as we started out this program and we were talking about the process that we go through, I think it's just critical for people to sit back and, and evaluate all the alternatives and see how they affect them and how they affect the things that are important to them. You know, it's, you know, it's a great tool. It certainly is a tool that, that allows for continuity of, of, of the management team to continue on, for legacy to continue to uh, to move on. And even as importantly for a lot of people, because this is an internal ownership transition, it's far more controllable. I mean, there is kind of a go and no go number. Whereas if you're, as a, you went through, I mean, when you're marketing to, to third parties, there's a whole lot uh, of, of noise that's out there that you need to deal with. And there's a whole lot of emotion that shifts back and forth throughout that process that is, has a lot less of a, a foundation uh, than going down an ESOP path. So way more unknowns. Oh my gosh. And putting in an ESOP deal takes about half the time as it does, you know, to sell to a third party, maybe less, but, um, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a good alternative to consider. It's not right for everyone, but I will tell you that the, the community itself of those that are, you know, employee owners of, of ESOP companies and those that have sold to an ESOP, but you'll, you'll see and, and hear a lot of people that are, uh, cheerleaders, uh, for the structure and the concept. And, and quite honestly, right now, it couldn't be more straight down center with regards to the narrative in the country uh, surrounding, you know, wealth inequality. I mean, this is a case where you're taking 
what's in the hands often of one or two people and putting it in the hands of thousands. Uh, and also you know, that, that our, our country is a shortage of, of retirement savings. And this is a program you know, that helps that. And, and it keeps jobs in America and in, you know, in their communities. So there's a lot of really positive messages that come out of this that, that, and it's not like the owner has to like give up like half his wealth to do it either. You know what I mean? And oh, that, you're getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> right? You're getting paid to do it all. <laughs> and, and, and in a lot of cases we talked about, I mean, if you're looking at certain situations, you may be getting paid a lot more on an after-tax basis yeah. than, than you would otherwise, depending on how it's structured and how the business performs. I love it. I know you and I could keep going and I, I want to be respectful of your time. So uh, the people that want to learn more, hear more, where do they find you and uh, the, the company and the website, all that stuff? Sure. So, um, well, you can come to any of our eight offices. We'd love to have you there. But the easiest way to reach us is on www.prairiecap.com. Two eyes in prairie, because a lot of people do it. Misspell that, but yeah, prairiecap.com. You you have all of our contact information there, but even more importantly, there's a whole lot of content from an educational perspective that you can draw upon. But we're happy to go out and meet and speak with anyone about ownership transition at any time. So, you know, know that there's there's not a meter running. We're we're happy to spend time just on the on the education up front to help people understand our services and and what uh, this process is all about. Dave, it's been a blast. Thanks so so much for coming on. I had fun. No, appreciate it, Ryan. So if you haven't learned a bunch in this episode, or if you're not even more curious about how this impacts you, what you want, how that compares to private equity versus third party versus management. Hopefully your curiosity is percolating even more. Go check out our Growth and Exit Bootcamp. It's on the 8th, 9th, and 10th of October at Bethel University. Three-day crash course on the five principles. It's all the stuff that I wish I would have known before we sold so you can actually have clarity about how all of these variables fit together. Then you can literally engineer the outcome that you want, whether that's five years from now or next year, you'll at least walk out of there going, I know how all these things work. I know what I want. And you know exactly what the next step is that makes sense for you. And if you go onto the registration page and plug in lab 50, so that's life after business 50, you get 10% off of the ticket. And if you want to bring a partner, we actually offer 50% off of any additional tickets after the first one. So Please reach out if you got any questions. We would, I would love to chat with you if you got questions on the agenda. The agenda is on the page. With that being said, I will talk to you next week.